Okay. Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Robin Hill. Robin is the CEO and founder of Ruffiner Capital Limited, a London-based boutique corporate finance advisory business with its own investment platform. Robin, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. Likewise. Uh, good to be here, Scott. Thank you. Fantastic. So let's just dive straight into things, Robin, Um, especially given the current climate with the COVID-19 outbreak, of course, if somebody were about to start their first day in leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? Uh, Well, there's there's the short version and there's the long version. Um, We are at the beginning of a dramatic change globally, but uh, locally in business and in our society, which we all hope is temporary, um, but we can't be sure. Um, We've been looking at this very closely since the news of it started breaking in the new year and took some fairly serious decisions about two or three weeks ago uh, in terms of how we operate as a business, and particularly given uh, our sector and what we do. So um, I would say somebody who is coming into a uh, a role that requires this sort of decision-making, um, that old adage about um, assume the worst but hope for the best does apply. So we have been uh, planning for a, um, a fundamentally difficult period through 2020, but actually we hope that with the measures that the government is now finally putting in place, that uh, the impact will be felt for perhaps uh, a period measured in weeks rather than many, many months. Absolutely. And taking that back to governments for a moment, um, we have seen some very contrasting approaches to um, the coronavirus outbreak as well. Um, For example, Italy did go into lockdown. Uh, Giuseppe Conte made that order quite early on. But um, up until this point over here in the UK, albeit there is now talks of lockdowns being mooted, we were taking very much a less hands-on approach. There There was money there, there were procedures in place, but we did in many ways just sort of wait to see what happens. If we do take that away from politics for a moment, Robin, which approach do you generally prefer as a leader when dealing with such difficulties? Do you dive straight in and get on top of the situation proactively, or do you tend to let it play out a bit and just see how matters develop before taking any action? Uh, well, the two answers to the question, Scott, is it depends what your what the problem is. Um, but if it's something that's potentially fatal to your uh, colleagues or employees or your business, then you act quickly and you act um, in a very fundamentally different way. If the building is on fire, um, you don't spend time deciding to change your clothes before you call the fire brigade or leave the building, do you? Absolutely not. Um, that's too right. Um, in terms of your own career, Robin, um, I would like to ask, um, did you always imagine that you'd end up in a position of leadership yourself? Uh, good question. Um, probably um, not because I'm particularly uh, attracted to uh, leading. I have uh, spent much of my career doing that in various businesses, but um, my first degree, uh, I trained as a designer. And so you're taught to look at things differently and produce different results from the same fundamentals. That's essentially the skill of a designer. Um, And so inevitably, with that kind of training, um, you do one of two things. You either teach it or you do it. 
in my case, both my parents at that point in history were teachers, and I looked at that from uh, uh, from the uh, work point of view and decided I didn't want that. So I had no choice but to go into business, really. It's really interesting how you mentioned your design career there, Robin, and how you uh, picked up certain skills going along. Do you think great leaders can learn the qualities required to be a good leader, or is it something that some people are born with, do you think? Uh, another good question. Um, it, it probably, I, I would say the, the uh, politically correct answer is that, of course, the, it's true that we can all learn new skills. It doesn't matter what you're talking about, whether it's becoming a politician or a parent or running a business. You can, uh, We can all learn to do things that we didn't previously know how to do. And with some application, um, you can learn to do them very well. Um, I think fundamentally, however, um, most people are quite capable of leadership, um, but some have an added advantage to it. So um, if you have a, you know, naturally good at communication, you'll probably be quite good leading a business or being in politics or being in media of some kind. If you really are not comfortable in that setting, then um, I think you'll, you'll find the, the road harder. For sure. And staying on that topic uh, just for a moment um, about sort of learning the qualities of being a good leader. Are there any examples of um, leaders throughout history, living or dead, who've maybe been inspiration to yourself as well? Uh, um, I don't. I, I, nobody comes to mind. Um, it's, I have to say the sort of uh, paradigm of uh, good leadership is is not really something I've uh, focused on intellectually or professionally until uh, the last few years when you know suddenly you find you, yourself in a situation where there's an opportunity to grow a business and you need to run and build a team and you realize somebody's got to be the leader. And so I've taken um, understanding the, the rules of engagement and what works and what doesn't work and so on much more seriously in the last few years. But I can't say as I've attached that to a particular personality. Um, but as you learn what works and what doesn't, obviously it's easier to judge um, when you see situations where it's done very well or done very badly. Absolutely. Um, what's in, what I think um, as well is that um, there are examples of good leadership that very much go over the under the radar, as it were, specifically in the uh, the business yes. world where there is not as much attention or focus on a certain individual. Um, bearing that in mind, Robin, do you think that leadership, effective leadership in particular, is as celebrated as it should be in this country? No, I don't think it is. And I think uh, the Brits, we are very good at some things. If you compare us with you know, a hundred other uh, reasonably developed countries, we're very good at some things. We don't seem to be good at corporate leadership in the way that businesses you see, particularly in Northern Europe and the Nordics, do seem to have a natural aptitude for doing it well. We're very good at coming up with the idea, the principle, the initiative, the entrepreneurial drive, but we seem to lack something in being able to deliver it, particularly on an international scale. Mm, so it's not necessarily the uh, the idea, but it's more the execution um, that we must focus on um, as um, a country, you think? I, I think so, yes. If there's one thing we could do better, um, it would be execution. 
uh, a good example, um, which especially coming from from somebody who's got a, a railway family background, is we invented the uh, the thing 150, 200 years ago, and uh, we probably have one of the most embarrassing rail networks in the in the, in Europe. Yes, for sure. I mean, other countries uh, for certain um, have uh, systems in place where um, the system is so much more um, efficient uh, nowadays. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, Robin, but before we do wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself, for the business, and what you hope to achieve in that time as well? Okay, well, I think it's probably uh, three things. Um, firstly is that we're in, into an unprecedented period uh, for business and for society uh, in general, of course. Um, and it's not going to be a particularly good period for many. Um, the important thing is obviously to stay safe and, and, uh, and follow the guidance and so on. But from a business point of view, uh, this means uh, we don't all just go home and do nothing for the next six weeks or six months. We have to continue running and protecting and growing where we can our businesses. And so we just have to do that in a different way using these days, thank God, um, reliable technology. If this had been 20 years ago, we'd have had a much bigger problem, I think. I think the second thing is that this is affecting the whole world. Um, and so we're not alone. Everybody will understand. I do think, though, the third point is that um, perhaps it will also change the way that we run and lead businesses because we're essentially tribal animals used to working in relatively small groups and like to see and touch and meet to make key decisions. I think having to have this isolation means that you have to use technology and perhaps we'll get better at working remotely, which can only lead to changes in business, changes in society, and perhaps even a better quality of life for some. Yeah, it's a very interesting point, but also I think it paves the way for maybe the rules to be rewritten with uh borrowing in the economic environment as well, doesn't it? It does. Um, I think uh, the governments, obviously, and many governments will be bending over backwards to protect business during this period. Uh, they have no choice, really. Um, what comes out the other side, though, I think that's a little more complicated. Obviously, the credit crunch 10, 12 years ago now, we've only just come out from the aftermath of that, really. So how long will this take? Absolutely. Um, of course, um, the OECD um, announced um, earlier today, I believe, that um, it could well be far worse, the economic impact that we're looking at from the coronavirus outbreak than uh, the uh, financial crash of 12 years ago. Um, but with the measures that the governments have uh, brought in as well, Robin, can you gain any sort of encouragement from that? Um, what's your reaction to that? Um, definitely. I think um, I, I think actually Boris Johnson um, uh, I'm not a particular fan, but I think he's actually um, done a good job. He's in a very difficult situation. Um, I think government's job is to is to do the best for the country. And, of course, people are saying they should have done certain things earlier. Maybe, but it would have caused had other impacts. Um, and the version of events we're seeing is only what's transmitted through media. And I suspect uh, they had some very difficult decisions to make and still have some more to come. So I think what they've uh, put in place is probably about right. I do think they've got to come up with a solution for the self-employed because that is 15, 20% of the working population. Um, the measures for the employed uh, are good and probably about right. Um, but they do need to look at um, uh, the other part of the workforce. 
for certain. And let's hope that they do look at that uh, comprehensively and do get the, uh, the solutions right. Uh, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, today. And it would be fantastic to have you back on in a few months' time once all this has blown over to see how things have uh, panned out from that point of view. So once again, thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you, Scott. Fantastic. And we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive Mm. um, 
source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a a huge Mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah i, I mean uh, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was 
I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realisation this is going to be a tough thing to do um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So... Um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous... Can it be players when players and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but... What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I definitely had many. 
um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Holyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of, uh, especially school kids, who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were 
Googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah well so was, <laughs> was I yeah. actually yeah <laughs> absolutely um now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year uh, in doing so whether you'd admit it or not yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands husbands and wives mothers and fathers sons and daughters please do take some time if you wouldn't mind and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. And so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018... Uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. 
Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary yeah. thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket um, but more importantly um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day one game a day over a six-week period broadcasters will pay money for that and therefore what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills if you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team base at the Oval or a team base at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.